Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time now for Bloomberg Opinion. Let's bring in Bloomberg Opinion columnist and, of course, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus of Bloomberg News, also the co-founder at Chief of Bloomberg News, Matt Winkler. Matt, welcome. We're speaking to you in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Your latest column, Trump inherited the world's best economy in 2017 and helped make it one of the worst. That's the main contention of the column. Matt, explain to those who don't fully understand what the president could have done to actually hurt the economy. As everyone knows by now, and it's, by the way, great to be with you, Bonnie, the coronavirus pandemic was something that all of us had to prepare for. When I say all of us, every country, uh, there was no question about that. And instead of preparing uh, the Trump administration, led by Trump himself, uh, was defying science, uh, muddling the message. Uh, He was constantly attacking people for all kinds of reasons. And so there was massive confusion. So instead of any kind of coordinated uh, attempt to contain the virus, uh, it was essentially every state was on its own. And some states did a very good job shutting down like New York and New Jersey uh, and Massachusetts and pretty much all of New England. But other states uh, took Trump's message and said, we can open the economy. We don't have to fear about anything. In fact, Trump himself said the virus would go away. That confusion uh, made it possible for the economy to actually be hit in all kinds of ways, because instead of a coordinated effort like you had in France or Germany or any number of developed nations, you had a completely confused one. And so Our jobless numbers are off the charts, as you know. I mean, 14% plus unemployment in April, even is down to 11. That's more than three times the UK's rate. So we are uh, leading, as you know, in total number of cases, and we are leading in deaths. Um, For a country that historically has prided itself on its science, prided itself on its medical care, we're a complete mess now. And there's no sign that our unemployment rate, which is the worst since Harry Truman was in the White House, is going to get anything close to what it was before the pandemic started. So, So yes, it's a combination of all these things. And clearly he has made it much worse than it had to be. So, Matt, I guess, you know, this is my first pandemic, global pandemic. So but I was just shocked at the fact that it is a national problem. Why do we not have a national slash federal response? I was you know, shocked to see governors basically, as you say, kind of having to fend for themselves and some doing better than others. Why do you think initially there wasn't and there still is not today a you know, coherent federal response? Because of leadership at the top, because there was contempt for a shutdown, which was what was required. There was contempt for universal masking. Uh, which was the message from on high. So the federal government essentially abdicated its responsibility to Americans and left it to the states to figure it out. Um, And so that's why we're dealing with this the way we are. Not the case in the UK, 
Not the case in France, not the case in Germany, not the case really anywhere else. Certainly not the case in Hong Kong, uh, which uh, has a great record um, because they have experience going all the way back to the beginning of this century with SARS. Uh, and they know that masks work, which is why the pandemic basically has disappeared into insignificance in Hong Kong, which is one of the most densely populated places on the earth. So if Hong Kong could do it, we certainly could have too. But our, you know, federal response was um, non-existent. The richest country in the world that can borrow at probably the lowest rate in the world and from anybody and hold on to it for the longest time. Why isn't there more anger, Matt, at the fact that 130,000 Americans have died? And sure, some of them would have died anyway, but perhaps not that many. Well, I think there is anger. Um, You know, I think uh, there was an assumption at the beginning of the year before the pandemic started that there was a very good chance Trump would have a second term um, because the economy was, relatively speaking, doing well. That is no longer the case. I mean, you read Bloomberg or any, any other news organization right now, and every poll in every so-called battleground state shows the tide has shifted dramatically away from him. So I have to believe a lot of this has to do with the pandemic itself, is that he so bungled it, mishandled it, and compounded the suffering for so many people that even people who were willing to give him a chance again have no longer uh, come around to that view. Is there a chance, uh, Matt, that this you know, not only impacts the president, but also perhaps the Republican Party in general as we, as we think about the Senate in uh, 2020? Yeah, look, uh, it's sort of really above my... Uh, <laughs> knowledge to to go further on on politics but yeah it stands to reason that uh the president's enablers are going to be in the same political peril as he will be because they're part of the problem i mean so if you have governors for example who said you don't need to wear a mask we should reopen the economy made something that should have been a scientific matter a political issue those people who are mostly republicans are going to probably pay for that uh, mistake, which is what it is. It's a mistake. Matt, you um, point out you, in your you, column that France, yeah. sorry, Matt, you point out in your column that France, Italy and Spain were similarly victimized, but their unemployment is about half the percentage of Americans out of work, which is a phenomenal track record, really. What about the UK, though? You you don't really criticize Boris Johnson, and yet there has been severe criticism of how he's handled the crisis. Well, I think that's right, except that He actually did get COVID-19. He suffered. uh, His uh, voters saw that he suffered. And when he recovered, fortunately, uh, he he did have a message. And the message was, we have to do this in a concerted way. So the UK may have been slow initially, and there may have been some skepticism at the top. But the UK did uh, actually uh, come around and has been uh, since then since uh, Boris Johnson was victimized, uh, they have had a pretty good record. And their unemployment rate, of course, is, you know, well below ours. And also their economy is is performing better for the time being. Matt Winkler, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Matt Winkler is co-founder of Bloomberg News and editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News. A fascinating column, just kind of comparing 
the U.S. response to the pandemic versus other countries around the world, and the particularly as it relates to the economic impact, and you look at data such as unemployment, for example, and likely a GDP print that we're going to get soon, it's going to be, uh, the U.S. does not compare well, uh, and Matt's column kind of calls that out. You can see Matt's work at Bloomberg.com slash opinion, plus uh, if you're on the terminal, O-P-I-N, go, you can see all of Matt's opinion work, plus that of Bloomberg Opinion, some great, great work put out daily basis by the good folks at Bloomberg Opinion. Well, this COVID uh, pandemic and the resulting economic dislocation has impacted all sorts of industries. That includes the residential real estate business uh, in markets across the country, including a lot of luxury markets. To get the latest, we welcome Bess Friedman. She's CEO of Brown Harris Stevens. Uh, Bess, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a snapshot. Let's start with Manhattan, kind of the real estate market here. This was a, a market that was hit early and hit very hard by the pandemic. Where are we now? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, we just opened up uh, on June 22nd, which meant real estate professionals were able to show. So that's been very good, but it's slow and steady. You know, people are still trying to figure things out. We're very much in the discovery mode after months of being shut down, not being able to show properties. And so now everybody's trying to figure out what they're going to do. Are they going to rent? Are they going to sell? Do they want to buy? And so agents are trying to work through all of that. And we're seeing new properties come on the market every day, a lot of rentals as well. And so at this point, we're still looking at the data and trying to figure out what's going to be in the next quarter, in this quarter, the third quarter. So it's still new and um, slow and steady is what I would say about New York City. But other markets like Palm Beach, you know, our Connecticut market uh, has done incredibly well. There's been, you know, there's not enough supply there. Uh, and the Hamptons, another market that's done very well. Uh, so uh, New York, yes, has been harder because of, you know, it's a city, it's vertical living, it offers different challenges that other places don't have because we're getting into elevators, we're in lobbies with each other, you know, so um, it's going to be a little bit slower for our recovery. Bess, uh, you know, anecdotally, I think a lot of people thought, uh, particularly people who had lived through the great financial crisis in New York City, that there would be a big downdraft in prices because people were suddenly put out of work or they were, you know, uncertain about their future. Perhaps they needed to spend money on medical bills or put money aside for their parents or what have you. Did that happen? Could that happen still? I mean, I think it's possible. You know, we're still trying to unravel all of this. I think there's a lot of credence in the ability of the Fed and the Treasury to bring about this economic recovery. So that's been good. But you know, people, businesses are going to close down. We know restaurants will. Um, And I think there's a lot of uncertainty as this pandemic looms. We're seeing upticks in other places where it has been mismanaged by certain governors, for sure. Um, And I think it's going to take a little bit of time to figure out where everybody is. Um, and, and again, we have to keep in mind in New York City, as far as prices go for real estate, before the pandemic, we were already in a price correction and we were doing very well. The market was fluid and we were correcting. Um, and so now I do expect there'll be a further correction as this all untangles. In some places, you know, it depends. And when there's oversupply, uh, people are going to have to adjust their prices because we know not all square feet are created equally. Depends on what's available. So, Bess, so we'll have to see. Yeah, let's talk yeah. about the concern about maybe a intermediate or longer term exodus from New York City. I live here in North Jersey, and the real estate market, particularly on the high end, is really, really heated up as New Yorkers look to get out of the city for various reasons, pandemic related. 
What's your longer-term view of New York? Some folks are suggesting this is the beginning of a very dark period for <laughs> uh, New York real estate. You know, I'm, I, I'll be honest. You know, I am. I do have my concerns. Uh, you know, we have had been facing headwinds when it came to all this legislation in Albany before this pandemic hit. I'm sure, you, you know, the fat, the salt deduction, the cap yep. was an issue, the, the, the push up in the mansion tax. And now there's this looming pied-a-terre tax that's pushed a lot of New Yorkers out already. And so now you have the pandemic, um, which is kind of a big bowl of bad for New Yorkers. But do I think uh, everybody's going to leave and it's going to be a mass exodus? You know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't believe so. I think quality of life matters to people. And New York City is a place where people just want to live because of the culture and the theater and the food. We know what New York City is about. You know, it is the greatest city in the world. So I do think some people may leave for a period of time. But I don't see it like the 70s where this was, there was this like white flight out of the city. I think we'll have a little bit of a mixed bag. Some people will leave. Some people will come back. Some people may want to double down here like me, you know, and stay here and, uh, you know, and wait while the city gets back together. But we are facing headwinds. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. We have a lot of issues um, that we're trying to grapple with. So the amount of high-rises that get built in New York is quite phenomenal. And, you know, in many cases, the number of apartments per floor is pretty massive. So you see these huge numbers of people in buildings. Will that continue better or will developers have to figure out new ways of spacing people out? I mean, that's that's uh, it's a question mark. I mean, I don't think. I don't think they, I think people may gravitate towards maybe living in buildings that have less people in it uh, for a time, but I, I may, and maybe some developers will start to build buildings with, for, that have less people on the floor, you know, but I don't, I think it's going to be hard to do that. Uh, I don't know if the economics will make sense. And what are you asking price per square foot if you only have 15 units in a building? Um, and, you know, just the cost of building and land in New York City, it all has to make sense for people. So, I don't know if they're going to reinvent that. They may look at things differently. They may set up the space differently and make sure people have enough, maybe have outdoor space or have home offices and the things that people are looking for. But I don't know if they're going to rejigger how, they, how they're you know, building buildings. That's a question you know, that we'll see as, this, um, as we go down the, the line with the pandemic. I don't know. It's a good question, though, and interesting. Bess, how about the uh, international buyer? On the margin over the last you know, 10 years, the international buyers really pushed the high end of the New York real estate market up. As I looked down, when I was in our Bloomberg office, looked down 57th Street, we'd see all these just ridiculously tall uh, towers that just <laughs> stick out of nowhere and are, are blight on the skyline, in my personal opinion. But, and I was, my understanding was a lot of international buyers were supporting those types of buildings. Where is the international buyer today? Yeah, we call that, that's been called billionaire's row, just so you know. Yep. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know the international buyers, we're not seeing a lot of that. The only thing I have heard of recently was early on uh, when the pandemic hit, there was uh, an investor from South America that bought a block of units at a project on the west side, sight unseen. Um, other than that, I have heard very little about any international buyers uh, in New York City. Um, I think that's dried up a bit. And I wonder, you know, when that will, will that come back and when, but you know, the majority of projects, if you ask developers, typically they say 20% of the people that bought were international and mm. the rest were domestic. So, I, you know, but I do think that that's, that's very quiet right now. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a real point to consider. 
Bess, where are your popular areas right now in New York City and, and, and just more generally the tri-state area? You know, I would say we're seeing a lot of the west side is very busy. Uh, downtown is always a place where we. I, I spoke to an agent yesterday who's in a bidding war on, on something downtown. Um, and I'm, that's not the I've heard a few different agents tell me that they're, you know, uh, in bidding wars with stuff in downtown areas. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Phenomenal intelligence there from Bess Friedman and Brown Harris Stevens. Well, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, is coming to uh, the United States today. He is the president of Mexico, and the president is coming to uh, visit President Trump today. To get a sense of kind of what the agenda might be and what the outcomes could be, we welcome Duncan Wood, director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. Duncan, thanks so much for joining us here. What is the purpose of this trip? Well, the official purpose is uh, is actually to celebrate the coming into force of the USMCA agreement, which uh, you know began last uh, last week on July first. Uh, but a lot of people are questioning really why it's necessary to come up and, and talk about this once all the hard work has been done. And so the Mexican government and the U.S. government have said that there is an important opportunity to discuss bilateral relations in the context of the pandemic. Um, but unfortunately, we really don't have much more detail than that. We suspect that there will be conversations about uh, drugs and organized crime in Mexico. We suspect that there will be conversations about ongoing collaboration on stopping Central American migration. Um, and the most, perhaps the most intriguing part of the, the visit is going to be a dinner that will be held at the White House tonight, where Andres Manuel López Obrador, president of Mexico, and uh, President Donald Trump will sit down with about 20 business leaders from both countries. And what we expect is that in that uh, dinner, a lot of awkward questions could be raised by the U.S. business community about the way that President López Obrador is running the Mexican economy, and in particular, uh, regulatory and legislative changes that are threatening the, uh, the certainty that investors have enjoyed up to this point. Well, what certainty have investors enjoyed? It feels like it's been such a volatile time and the relationship between President Trump and AMLO has been extremely strained. And secondary to that question, what changed? AMLO is now suddenly a a, a fan of President Trump? It's an extraordinary relationship that we've seen developing over the past few years. I remember that back in 2018, when uh, Lopez Obrador was still a candidate for the presidency, he published a book called Oye Trump, which uh, translates into Listen Up Trump, where he uh, provided responses to all of President Trump's attacks, verbal attacks on Mexico. And uh, President Lopez Obrador, as a candidate, had said that he was the man that could stand up to Trump. Immediately after winning uh, uh, that victory in July of 2018 in the presidential election, the two men, however, began to develop a, uh, a relationship. Um, some people even speculated this would develop into a, some kind of bromance. They seem to be so friendly with each other. And Andres Manuel López Obrador has con- consistently said that he wants a relationship of mutual respect with the United States. And every time that there has been provocation from the northern side of the border, then Andres Manuel has refused to respond, uh, instead saying that he wants relationships of love and peace with the world. And so what we've seen is that over time, Donald Trump has actually come to recognize Lopez Obrador as a friend, as a partner. And, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an extraordinary achievement in many ways. But what I think a lot of people are questioning is whether or not this will play out well for the Mexican president, both at home and here in the United States, in particular with Mexican migrant communities who have been left out of this visit 
And, you know, let's not forget that those same Mexican migrants are sending record levels of remittances back to their families in Mexico at a time when they need it the most. Duncan, what's the feeling uh, in Mexico about this visit? I mean, we have a U.S. presidential election just four months away here. I mean, is there concern here that this is just a political stunt um, by AMLO in support of President Trump? So there's all kinds of speculation in Mexico. Um, Back in, uh, I think it was April of this year, um, uh, Mexico uh, came to a deal with, uh, with OPEC Plus on cutting oil production. But it wasn't able to deliver as much of a cut as uh, OPEC Plus was demanding. And in, in that case, President Trump said that the United States would cut its production even more so as to compensate for Mexico not being able to deliver. And in exchange, Mexico kind of owed the United States a favor. And in Mexico, a lot of people are saying, is this the favor that Donald Trump demanded? We have no evidence that that's the case. However, what we do see is that uh, there is a lot of concern amongst the, uh, the intellectual elites in Mexico that this does set up a bad precedent, in particular because um, in addition to meeting with President Trump during what is clearly a, uh, uh, you know, a very vibrant and dynamic campaign year, electoral year here in the United States, there is no meeting planned with uh, candidate former Vice President Joe Biden. And the folks from the Biden campaign have been coming out and tweeting that they, they don't think that this is appropriate, that they think this is the wrong time for AMLO to come to, uh, uh, to Washington. So it has become highly controversial in that way. But let me just tell you one thing. AMLO does, uh, President Lopez Obrador does seem to have his finger on the pulse of the Mexican uh, uh, electorate because 59% of Mexicans support him making the trip at this time. Very, very briefly, we're out of time, but how is Mexico doing on coronavirus? Uh, unfortunately, Mexico is doing extremely badly. Um, you know, I mean, here in the United States, we face enormous problems. In Mexico, we have a, a, a terrible situation. We're seeing uh, the number of dead rising over 30,000. Uh, we're seeing that uh, the reporting uh, is uh, is really inadequate, so we really don't know the full extent of the crisis. And certainly the Mexican healthcare system is under enormous strain. And so this is a, a true crisis for the country. And in fact, it is a true crisis for the Mexican president. And many people have speculated that's another reason why he wants to distract attention and, and come visit the United States at this point. We have to leave it there with Duncan. Thank you for all of the intelligence. Duncan Wood is director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. And of course, we will be keeping an eye out on all of those meetings today with AMLO and of course the, the dinner this evening as well. Now let's turn back to the markets and bring in somebody who can tell us exactly what's going on, not just in the United States, but internationally. Clive Gilmore is CEO and Group CIO at Mondrian Investment Partners, about $41.5 billion in assets under management, and he joins us now. Clive, thanks for joining. We're seeing a continued creep higher. In fact, it's, it's more like a canter higher these days, the odd day where we're seeing a down day. What's the basis for the optimism in this market? Uh, Yeah, thank you. Um, I think the key issue is one of liquidity. I think it's been talked about quite a bit uh, because, as we know, the backdrop economically is not a good one. Um, The jury's still out as to which country is dealing with the COVID-19 issue better. Certainly, there's been a pickup of cases in the U.S., and if you'd just been looking at that data, you wouldn't believe that the U.S. market would go up, but it clearly has been going up. But I think the point that I'd really make is the difference between the type of stocks that are going up. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you look at global equities, that's the U.S. combined with all the international opportunities, 
the biggest difference between so-called value and growth stocks historically was in the fourth quarter of 1999, where the difference was 14%. To put that into context today, we're only in early July, and the difference between growth and value is over 30%. In other words, growth stocks are outperforming value stocks by 30% globally year-to-date. So it's really a reflection of liquidity and trying to find the type of companies that are short-term beneficiaries of what's happening with COVID-19 allied to the fact that discount rates have come down so much and they're future growth companies, obviously. So, Clive, where do you see when you and your team look globally? Are there areas of the globe that you see and markets that you see compelling opportunity here or is the risk uh, from the pandemic just too much of an unknown right now? Well, clearly, um, the jury is out as to what will happen, as I said, and it's difficult, therefore, to pinpoint exactly how the next two years will work out. However, one thing that it seems clear to me is nations with a greater creditor status or companies with strong balance sheets are likely to be in a better position looking forward. And if you look at that objectively, then you're left with a number of countries which would seem to put their head above the parapet as being interesting on a long-term basis. You may be surprised to hear me say that one of those is Japan. Hmm. And the reason for that is that for years, people have complained about uh, return on equity in Japan, in part because Japanese companies don't have optimal balance sheets. But that cash now is proving to be very valuable because whilst they can have operational leverage, that's a change in revenue and its impact on profit, they're unlikely to have the problems related to financial leverage. And from a country point of view, obviously there are countries like Norway, Switzerland, Singapore, even Australia and New Zealand, that have a much stronger fiscal position as nations themselves, which you'd expect to be beneficiaries. A quick word here on Hong Kong. You notice I omitted it from that list. Um, Clearly, Hong Kong does have a strong financial position, but there are various concerns within the Hong Kong framework its proximity to China being the obvious one. The issue with the peg, which I think you've raised before, which I think is a fascinating one, because the Chinese renminbi is believed to be pegged against a basket of currencies, and the Hong Kong dollar only against the US dollar. So even if um, President Trump wasn't saying what he was saying about the peg, there may be pressure on the Hong Kong dollar peg at some point anyway. So I think perhaps Hong Kong's not the optimal place to look for in Asia, but perhaps Singapore and Japan. Do you really think that this time might be different when it comes to the Hong Kong peg, though, Clive? Uh, Yes, actually. um, Look, people have always said the whole point of a peg, right, is if it breaks, it will never hold again. You can't. It's very difficult to re-peg because no one believes it's ever going to hold. So I think the the uh, community worldwide of investors uh, and the monetary community more generally believe that the Hong Kong dollar uh, peg is going to hold. But as I said, there's pressure anyway, because uh, for some time, the Chinese government wanted to remindify trade within Hong Kong. And that means in the long term, you would expect greater integration with Hong Kong and China. And if that's the case, it's difficult to believe that one currency could be pegged against a basket, including the euro, for example, and the other currency could be pegged merely against the US dollar. That seems to make very little sense to me long term. Clive Gilmore, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it, as always. Clive Gilmore, 
CEO and Group CIO at Mondrian Investment Partners. They have about $41 billion on the management based in London, giving us, as always, a uh, very broad perspective on global investing um, around the world where opportunities uh, might be. And again, as Clive was saying, that there's certainly lots of uncertainty out there as it relates to the pandemic, but uh, also some opportunities out there. Again, we have central banks around the globe providing liquidity. It's not just the Federal Reserve, but the ECB, the Bank of Japan, and others providing tremendous amounts of liquidity in this market. And, uh, you know, as many strategists have stated, it's kind of a, a backstop for risk assets. And we're seeing that in the market again today as the S&P is up about seven-tenths of one percent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.